0: you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of uh, Psalm chapter 51, if you would, the 51st chapter in the book of Psalms as we continue this series called Psalms Playlist. What a great time of worship that ties in really well with a specific Psalm we're going to be looking at this morning. So we call it Psalms Playlist. We're not pulling out every single one uh, of the 150 chapters uh, in the book of Psalms, we're just pulling out selective ones. A few more weeks to go in this series. It'll take us right up to the Christmas holiday, specifically. And uh, today is going to be a psalm written by David, King David, one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known figure in all of the Old Testament, aside from maybe Moses. David would be the one that is known by the most. So, Psalm fifty-one was uh, has an interesting context. We're going to cover here in just a moment. But I want to just remind you a little bit about David. Specifically, he wrote about 73, some would say 75 or half of the Psalms that we can attribute to him specifically. This is one of the ones that he is really, really well known for, Psalm 23 being the most. But David was an interesting figure in the Old Testament. Uh, he was the youngest of eight sons. He was pegged to be the king of Israel. He was the least likely of all of his brothers to be chosen and selected by, uh, uh, as king. God was the one that had ultimately selected him and would elevate him to that position. But David is known for a lot of key events in the Old Testament. All through First and 2 Samuel, we read much about his life and his service. Uh, probably his experience with Goliath, uh, being the one who slayed the giant and led Israel to victory. David was also one who helped to foster and to bring in a time of military uh, uh, strength for the nation of Israel. They were kind of the golden years, really, when he reigned for 40 years. They were the golden years of the land of Israel. And so he was one that God used and God used greatly. But as we're going to see today, David was also very human. David was not this figure from the Old Testament that just because we read about him so often, just because he wrote pretty much half of the Psalms, he did not have a bubble around him that kept him immune from the same uh, uh, sins and weaknesses that we also carry. David was very much all of that. And Psalm 51 is going to be written in the context of perhaps the darkest experience, perhaps in David's entire life. Psalm 51 is going to be written specifically in that context. And as David writes the words to Psalm 51, he's looking back to this experience a year before he would write Psalm 51 one year prior would be this dark moment in his life that he couldn't blame on anybody else. He couldn't excuse it. He couldn't justify it. He couldn't rationalize it. The, the, the guilt and the choice would fall completely on him. And as he writes this Psalm, he is no doubt thinking about everything that went on that year prior. It's a a season of his life that Scripture kind of unfolds and it peels back the curtain so that we can read exactly what went into David's decisions a year before he would ever write this psalm. It was an experience where if he could hit the do-over button, he would have done it over and over and over, but that do-over button doesn't exist right? We, we've experienced much of what David is about to recount here. The details may be different, but we've all had those moments in our lives where maybe we said something, we wish we could hit do over and bring it back because we didn't really mean it, or it came out the wrong way, or we were just angry and we kind of let the words flow, and, and, and we, we hurt somebody. We, we, we wish we could hit the button, but the du- button doesn't exist. Or maybe there was that choice we made, maybe it was a one-time choice, maybe it was a a weekend when we thought nobody was looking, or maybe it was a season of life, you know, college or those… you know, years you know, in the past where maybe it was just this, this experience where we just kind of went over the wall and we went running off into the wilderness, so to speak, where we thought that we were the ones that called the shots. We were in control and God wasn't going to have a place in our lives until some point later. And we come limping back with consequences and with guilt and with shame and with regret, realizing that the do-over button doesn't exist. And even though we can't do over, what David shows us here in Psalm 51 is that we can't start over. And we can start over with a clean heart and a brand new start. And the beautiful thing about Psalm 51 is that it traces that from the sin to the restart in epic detail where David just gets gut level honest with God about a sin and he invites us to come in. He doesn't teach us anything outright so much as he shows us from his own experience, his own example, he shows us how we respond whenever we've fallen, whenever we've sinned, and we're ready to come back. 2 Samuel chapter 11 will recount for us the details of David's sin a year prior to Psalm 51. You can't really read the 51st Psalm without understanding some of the detail of the backstory. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, you can read on the slides behind me. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's just jump in in verse 1 and begin to read to understand the context of what David is about to write in Psalm chapter 51. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1, it says, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle, David was king at this time, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon, and they besieged, specifically, Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. There's a key phrase there, David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, I know that's hard for us to understand this context from 3,000 years ago, but when a king would go to war, at times it would be to expand their territory. At other times it would be to help solidify and to provide security for themselves, I think it would be safe to say. Regardless, in the spring, when the times when kings typically went off to war with their warriors, David here, it says, stayed back in Jerusalem. He was not where he was supposed to be. He had let his guard down and he had become lazy in the details of his life. Oftentimes what happens is when we have those experiences, I want you to listen closely because this may help us in the future, that whenever we have those experiences where we want to hit the do-over button and we're looking around because we just said something or did something or had a season in life that we regret, when we're looking around for that do-over button, if we only can analyze that failure or that sin, what often happens is we stepped into a moment where we let our guard down. We stepped into a moment where we weren't aware of our circumstances. We stepped into a moment where we become lazy spiritually. David was at this place particularly and the scene is being set for an epic failure in his life. Chapter 11, same chapter verse 2. Let's pick up again. And it says now when evening came that David arose from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the king's house. Again, he was king at this time. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent, and he inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers, and he took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself for her from her uncleanness, this would have been a, an Israelite custom, she returned to her house. David is in the place where he's not supposed to be. He walks up into a setting on the roof of his house, which we don't know if he was accustomed to what he was about to see, if he went looking for something, or if it was just an everyday occurrence that was typically benign and innocent. But regardless, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and his heart wasn't ready to handle it. And he steps up there, and he sees something that he wasn't ready for, and he immediately begins to pursue what his flesh desired rather than what God desired. And he inquires, hey, who is this person over there on the next Ruth? What's her name? Who is she? And, and, and even his own people around him, one of them spoke up. It says it right there and says, hey, listen, man, you need to slow it down because do you know who this is? And he names her by name. This is Bathsheba. And he names who she is. And he says she's married and she's married to Uriah, one of your warriors. I mean, in every way possible, this man who had everything to lose, I mean, David could have just done him in right there on the spot. He steps up boldly, and in so many ways he says, you need to think about what you're about to do because you're about to make a huge mistake. And David wouldn't listen. And in the verses between, following what I just read, David would ultimately find out that she conceived. Bathsheba would now bear a child that was his, and in his desire to cover over what he had done, He would send her husband to the front lines of the battle and he would command his soldiers to retreat and withdraw so that he would be left out to dry. And sure enough, his plan worked and her husband Uriah was killed in the heat of battle without anyone seemingly knowing that David had set him up. Verse 26 and verse 27 of chapter 11, it says, Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife. And then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. What the enemy often does with our sin is he rolls out a few fallacies from time to time. One of those fallacies is, is that the sin, if the sin is private and doesn't really hurt anyone, that it's not that big of a deal. That couldn't be further from the truth. David thought his sin was private. It hurt a lot of people, and it was a very big deal to the Lord. Another fallacy as it relates to sin is that sometimes we, because of maybe how we perceive our position or maybe some of the things we've done well and rightly, that sometimes we deserve a little entitlement at times to sort of step outside the boundaries that God has set. It doesn't have to be just in this area of sexual purity. It can be in any area. David perhaps may have felt a bit entitled. After all, he was the king. He had killed Goliath. They wrote songs about him, and he was the national hero. Maybe he felt a little entitled that particular evening when he couldn't sleep and stepped up to the balcony and saw what he saw. Maybe he felt that he deserved this particular thing to take place because after all, look at what he had done and look at who he was. It's one of the biggest fallacies. Never do we ever have the right to step outside of the boundaries that God, who is eternal without beginning without end, who holds every ounce of sovereignty over our lives, never do we have the privilege of stepping outside of what he has already called right or good. It's a fallacy that sometimes the enemy will bring our way. David would step over that line. He would perhaps believe the lies, and for the next year, he would begin to operate in a sea of guilt and shame and regret for one year until the time that ultimately God would raise up a man named Nathan who was a prophet, and it would be Nathan who would speak into David's life one year later. That's what we read in chapter 12, if you look over in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says that the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said, he has a little story to share with David, a little parable, and he says to David, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and he nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. And well, then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, "'As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and he had no compassion. And Nathan then said to David, "'You are the man.'" It was this moment when this seemingly insignificant little prophet would step up into the face of the king of the land of Israel and put his finger figuratively in his chest and look him square in the eye, again, at the risk of his own life. And he would say, after the sin, what someone had previously tried to say before the sin, but David wouldn't listen, he puts his finger in his chest and he says, David, you are the man. And you can't miss the symbolism that's there. I mean, the, the, the rich man who had everything being David and the poor man who had just a little lamb that he cared for in the midst of his family, that being Uriah the Hittite. And, and, and rather than enjoy gratefully everything that was at, his, was at his disposal as king, David went to Uriah and took the blessing of his life who was his wife. It had happened a year before. And I think with this confrontation still ringing perhaps in his heart, in his mind, David pins the words now to this amazingly significant psalm, Psalm chapter 51, that we only really understand the best when we read it in the context of what we've just learned about David's sin. It's in response to his sin where David ultimately now begins to come clean. And what you're going to see in this psalm, I want to lay it, I, want, I don't want to lay it out, God already laid it out. I just want to kind of unpack for you a sequence of repentance that takes place that you're going to see in the psalm. We're going to walk through it in just a moment. There are five steps to this sequence of repentance that whenever we sin before God and whenever we fall short, whenever we come to the place where we're ready to come clean and to be back where we used to be again, there's this sequence that we're going to unpack here. And the first step of that is conviction where God convicts us and he confronts us over our sin. The second step is where we confess it and we come clean with God. The third step is that of repentance, where we don't just change our mind about our sin, but we change our actions regarding that sin. The fourth step is going to be the praise that begins to flow as a result of being right with God again. And then the fifth stage is joy the joy that God brings and he restores as a result of his forgiveness. And so let's walk through this. This is so incredibly powerful. That lays out for us a beautiful picture that where we fall short and we do, that when we sin and we do, that there is a path back into the presence of the Lord, that even though there may be consequences, we can still come back to where we used to be. Man, what amazingly good news that is. So let's jump in, looking at this first step towards repentance and that sequence, that being conviction. Look at what it says in Psalm 51. We're going to move towards the end. We're going to start kind of a little bit backwards here. We're going to start towards the end and then jump back to the beginning. Look at verse 16 and verse 17. David writes here, he says, speaking to the Lord, for you did not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. In other words, he's saying, there's not a sacrifice I can make to cover over what I did in your sight. He says, you're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David is identifying for us that when we sin and when God, as He convicts us, He often convicts us on the inside, not on the outside. It's not about us saying, all right, God, in the Old Testament context, let me just bring a lamb and pay for this sin. I'm just going to offer it as a sacrifice. For us, sometimes we have different versions of that. Lord, let me just come to church. I'll start going to church. You know, maybe that'll cover over my sin in your sight. Maybe I'll start doing some good deeds, or I'll start making a do- donation to, to help those who are in or whatever, and we try to do these things on the outside, God says, I'm not looking for that nearly as much as I'm looking for something to go on in your heart. That's where God starts as it relates to repentance. He starts in the heart. And whether it's us saying something that hurt someone else that we need to own, or whether we did something that, that ultimately was outside the boundaries of what God says that we need to own, or whether it's that whole season of life where we know we just blew it, and we went over the fence, and we ran off chasing after our own flesh and our own desires, God starts with the heart. And it's not the work of someone else, it's the Holy Spirit who comes knocking. Have you ever had that time in your life as a Christian where you did something that you knew was wrong and immediately you, you begin to feel this sense of, uh, of heaviness on the inside that, you know what, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have gone there, I shouldn't have visited that website, I shouldn't have, whatever it was, fill in the, web, fill in the, fill in the blank. And you feel this heaviness on the inside. It's just not right. and You almost feel this distance like, like Adam and Eve when they sinned and they took the fruit and, and they began to hide from God. you ever feel that heaviness? Right? That's conviction. That's a good thing. That's God saying, I don't want you to stay in this because it's going to mess you up. It's going to ruin your life. And he convicts us of our sin. And that's what he does here with David. He begins to convict him. This whole Psalm 51 is layered with conviction, it's that deep-seated confrontation that God brings to our lives over our sin. John Piper, author, former pastor, theologian in many ways, points out as it relates to conviction. He says conviction is precise. It's precise. It, 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 it hits the, the, the sin nail on the head, right? It's, that, it, it's very specific. You should have done that. You should have said that. But sin at the same time is also helpful. It's loving. It's God opening the door to move us out of, out of that regret and shame and guilt. And he's opening the door. Conviction opens the door for us to, to move to a better place. Right When God convicts us of our sin, he's not trying to make it hard for us. He's not trying to steal happiness or enjoyment. He, he's actually doing the most loving thing. He's confronting us in our sin. That's what he begins to do with David. That second step there that follows after God begins to convict is that we have a choice to make. And as God convicts us of our sin, what David had done for a year was he pushed it away. God would speak to his heart. David would cover his ears, not listening. God would try to get his attention, and David would look the other way. And that often is what happens with us. We have a choice to make as God convicts, our sin, convicts us of our, of our sins as believers. That, that, that Sometimes we, uh, we often make the wrong choice, and we begin to rationalize our sin. Right? We begin to say why we deserve this particular sin. Oh, I know it's not right, but Lord, I deserve this. Maybe it's, un, maybe it's a, a, a choice to be unforgiving towards someone. And, and we begin to rationalize, well, well, they hurt me so badly. They deserve for me to be bitter and angry towards them. That's rationalizing our sin. And God convicts us, you can't be unforgiving because it's going to destroy you. And by the way, I've forgiven you already of, of equally damaging things. And so you need to also be forgiving. And what happens many times is as he convicts us, we push him away. It's like, no, I don't want to go down that route. I don't want to forgive. And we stiff-arm him, and it happens in so many different types of sins in our lives. But the other choice that we can make, rather than keeping him at a distance, is that we can choose to just own our sin and to confess it. Verse 1 and verse 2, David begins to show what confession looks like. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness." According to the greatness of your compassion, he pleads for God's loving kindness and compassion. He says, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my, he doesn't say any PC, politically correct word. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Look at verse 3. He says, for I know my transgressions. It's like he's saying, I know what I've done. I know, I, I know what I deserve. My sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you, you only have sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David is confessing his sin. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful picture that we can run and we can hide and we can try to justify our sin and we can try to excuse our sin and we can try to languish in the pool of our own flesh and do whatever we want and I deserve this and I want my best life that I can create for myself and I'm going to pursue anything I want and do whatever I want. After all, I know a bunch of other Christians that are doing the same thing and I'm just going to live life on my terms and my way and I'm going to. I, 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 that's, that's just going to be my modus operandi, right? My MO, that's, that's the way I'm going to live. Or we can just come clean and say, God, I blew it. And Lord, I, I confess it to you. And as we do that, we take one huge step towards, towards what is right, towards God. God convicts David of sin. He convicts us. David confesses his sin. we also have an, oppor- an opportunity to confess when God convicts us of our sins. Step number three was repentance. To confess our sin is to change our heart, it's to change our mind. It's, to confess our sin is to say, I know this is wrong. I know it up here, I know it in here. To repent of our sin is to change not just our heart, not just our mind, it's to change our action. It's to make a 180, that's what repentance is. And I know repentance kinda gets a little bit of a bad rap because oftentimes it's the angriest people who hold the signs that say repent, right? These are the ones that don't know any joy at all. They're the ones holding the sign, repent or burn, (laughs) you know. But repentance is very biblical. It's right out of the pages of Scripture. Repentance is something that is a necessity if we're going to move out of brokenness and shame and guilt and regret and back into the joy of the Lord again. It's a a necessity. David shows us again what it looks like. He doesn't tell us what to do. He shows us what to do. Psalm 51, look down in verse 6. He says, still speaking to the Lord, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop. This is an Old Testament picture of what it meant to be cleansed. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken, that is a reference to the conviction that he experienced, let those rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take, me, take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David had lost that joy for a year. Restore to me, Lord, the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. David is saying, I'm sick and tired of being into sin. I'm sick and tired of stuffing it under, you know, uh, uh, to try to hide it under a covering. I'm sick and tired of trying to hide from it and to keep it from you, Lord. I'm, I'm just tired of it. I'm ready for it to be done with and dealt with. And I confess it to you. And now, Lord, would you wash my heart? He's repenting. Would you wash my heart? I don't want it to be the same way it's been. I want a new heart. And he says in, in that verse, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, when he says, created me a clean heart, he's using a very specific Hebrew word, the Hebrew word bara, which God used in Genesis 1 and 2 when he created the heavens and the earth. It's the same Hebrew word. Don't miss this. How did God create in Genesis 1 and 2? He created from nothing. He created the heavens and the earth and the seas and the animals and people. He created from nothing. David is saying, I got nothing to bring to the table here, Lord. I don't have an ounce of righteousness in and of myself to bring to the table that you can work with. I've got nothing. Lord, I just beg you, would you create out of nothing in me a clean heart because I'm sick and tired of this sin. Give me a clean heart, and Lord, would you sustain me? And Lord, please, oh, please, this is an Old Testament thing. If you're, cre- if you're a believer today, God's filled you with the Holy Spirit. He's never taken the Holy Spirit from you. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit operated differently. He would come upon Christians at certain times for certain tasks. So David is saying, Lord, please don't take your spirit from me. I can't stand another moment outside of your, your presence. I've felt that distance for the last year. Lord, would you just fill me and change me and sustain me? And when it's all said and done, Lord, I'll teach, I'll teach transgressors your ways. I'll do it because I'm tired of being where I've been. That's repentance. You know, that's repentance. And David has now moved from conviction. He's moved into confession. He's owned his sin. He's now turned from it. Look what happens in verse 14. Now he begins to experience the overflow of that. God's doing something in his heart. He begins to step four, praise. Verse 14, verse 15, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God the God of my salvation. And then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Oh, Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. You know, the choirs that sing the loudest are the choirs that understand what it's like to be moved from from sin to forgiveness. You know, the preachers that preach the most effectively are the ones who understand what it's like to be moved from sin to forgiveness. (laughs) David's praising God here. Why would he praise God? Because he knows, he, he knows what God had done. Look over to Psalm 103 for just a second. It's not, for, no, it's not far from Psalm 51. Psalm 103. The reason David could praise God is because of what we're about to read right here in Psalm 103. Another psalm, by the way, that David wrote. Psalm 103, verse 10, here's why he praises God after he's been convicted, after he confesses, after he repents. Verse 10, Psalm 103, he says, speaking of God, he's not dealt with us according to our sins. <laughs> David says, man, if he dealt with me according to my sin, I, I'm, I'm done, Right? Take me out of the oven. I'm done, right? And we would say the same exact thing. If he dealt with us according to our sins, we are done for. There is no hope. David says he's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Jesus took all of that for us. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west. You can't measure that. You can measure north to south. You can't measure east to west infinitely as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Corey ten Boom, one that I mentioned from time to time, a missionary who felt the horrors of the concentration camps because of her obedience to the Lord, made the comment that when God forgives us, he casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. And then he posts a sign that says no fishing allowed. (laughs) That's good stuff, man. David understood that he took the filth of his sin, of everything he had done that we read of in 2 Samuel 11, and all of the deceit and all of the sin and all of the chasing after the flesh. And God, when he came clean, he forgave David, and he cast it into that that sea of forgiveness and forgetfulness. And he said, no fishing allowed, David. There's no reason to go back there. The enemy will take us back to that sea And he will run our face in condemnation and try to rub our face in what we've done in the past. Listen, God doesn't do that. What he forgives, he sets us free from. He doesn't hold it against us. Anymore. That's why David could praise And I'm telling you, man, when we are in that cycle where we've sinned and we want to do our own thing and we're wrestling with God because He's going to come after us because He loves us and He's convicting us and we're covering our ears and covering our hearts and staying away from church and not wanting to read His Word, not wanting to hang with His people, and we're trying to do everything we can to just stay comfortably in our sin. And the Holy Spirit is beating on our heart's door. Listen, when we finally come to the place where we just come clean and put it away and take a step out of our sin and our step towards Him as Christians, I'm saying man, we begin to sense over time this, the beauty of his forgiveness that he really does set us free. He really does wipe the slate clean and he really does, just like First John 1, 9 says, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the guilt can be gone and the shame can be gone. And we begin to praise God again and David moves into the final step here and that last step we see in Psalm, in a different psalm but wrapped up again in Psalm 51 is that step of joy. David actually said it in verse 12 in Psalm 51. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's in a different psalm, however, that David, I think, recounts the joy of what happens when we come clean before the Lord. And it's in Psalm 32. I want you to flip over there with me. It's the other direction now, obviously. Psalm chapter 32. Another psalm that David would write. I close with this psalm. Because it is like a, uh, if Psalm 51 is exhibit A of repentance, Psalm 32 is exhibit B. If you're talking about the topic of <clears throat> conviction, confession, repentance, praise, and joy. Psalm 51 would be part A. Psalm 32 would be part B. Psalm 32, well, let me, let me say it this way. Psalm 51, we get to see in writing what that whole cycle looks like of David being convicted and confessing and coming clean and repenting and praising God. Psalm 32 shows us what happens to the heart after that takes place. And man, it is just nothing but absolute pure joy for David. Psalm 32, written by David, verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. It's like David is throwing a party, man. It's like a woohoo moment. You know, I have been set free. I'm not carrying this guilt anymore. God has forgiven me. He says at the end of verse 32, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 3, he talks about that year between his sin and his confession and repentance. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That's that conviction. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah, that's a psalmist term that means just think about this, just dwell on that. And verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. There's that confession. My iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. (laughs) He had moved through the cycle, and God had set him free. And he wasn't in that pit anymore. He would carry consequences. And even in the consequences, God's grace would be sufficient. But David would have the joy of one who's just seen the prison doors swing open and be told you're free to go. And all he could do was praise from a heart of joy. You know what? There may be someone here today that you were still dragging around that ball and chain from something that happened in the past. And you've asked God to forgive you and you've confessed it and he has but you still have this mistaken notion that somehow he still keeps it in his back pocket. And when you don't read your Bible enough or when you fall short, he's going to whip that back out and take you back to it and say, don't you remember who you are because of what you did back there? Listen, God's never going to do that. That's the way the enemy works. Some of you today, you remember maybe what you did back then. And today it's time for you to, if you haven't already, to just come clean with the Lord and come home. And if you've already done that, to begin believing in your heart and your mind what God says about you, that your righteousness is as the noonday sun, Psalm 37. Not because you or I deserve it, but because of the presence of our Savior in us, and because he declares that about us. You know what, if you've never come to a relationship with God in the first place, Maybe today you feel that sense of heaviness and that sense of conviction as a God who's holy and perfect, who knows you better than you know yourself, is putting his finger over the sin issue of your life. And he's saying, you got to do business with this. And the best thing that you can do if you've never come to a relationship with God is right now today, if he's convicting you of your issue of sin in your life, would be to say, Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, but I also acknowledge that you sent your son Jesus to take my sin on himself for me. And as an act of my will today, Lord, I admit my sin, and I invite Jesus to forgive and take over. And what you'll experience is moving from guilt and shame and regret into a place where you get a brand new start. You can't hit the do-over button, (laughs) but, man, you can hit the start-over button. And he offers it to you today. Let's pray. I'm going to ask Adam to come and just play quietly, and before I pray, I want to give you an opportunity to do business with the Lord this morning. Maybe maybe the Lord today has put his finger on something in your life as a believer, as a Christian, that you you need to make right with him, and understand today that he's not putting his finger on that to rub your face in it, he's putting his finger on it to set you free from it. And maybe it, was, maybe it was a one-time thing. Maybe it was a season of your life and you've been dragging that guilt and that shame and that regret for long enough. You've tried to hide it. You've tried to distance yourself from God. And now you've come to a place to where, you know what, you're just finally willing to listen and you're willing to come home again. God gives you the remedy. Hey, he'll convict. And what he asks of you is to just own it and to confess it from your heart and to turn from it and to accept his forgiveness and his grace that we just sang about and to move forward in joy and in praise. For others of you, you look back and you realize what all God has saved you from. And I'm not saying it's because you committed some, you know, a list of sins that doesn't even exist. Every sin is offensive to God, no matter how big or small. Every sin required the death of Jesus to pay for it. But maybe for you, you look back and you realize in the moment now of exactly how much God showed his love for you when he forgave you and set you free. And all you can do right now is just to praise him as you talk to him. And for others, maybe for the first time today, you've made the decision to finally, once and for all, lay down your sin. It doesn't mean you'll always be perfect. But in your heart, the best that you can, you decide, I don't want sin to characterize me anymore. And so you're ready right now where you sit to tell Jesus about that and to confess your sin to him. He died and he rose to pay for it as God. And right now you're ready to tell him, and you can right now in this moment. That not only do you confess it, but the best you can, you turn from it. And you invite him to come and to forgive you. And to take over as your Savior, and as your Lord. God, I thank you for this psalm that lays out for us this amazing picture of how to come home when we've wandered. And, Lord, we've all wandered. But, Lord, it's this amazing picture of not a bunch of hoops to jump through. It's all issues of the heart that as you convict, we confess, and we turn, we repent. And what you give, Lord, in exchange of that guilt and shame, when we acknowledge and we recognize how you have set us free and forgiven us, is that that brings about a very natural sense of a desire to praise you and to enjoy you. It brings joy again. God, we thank you for that. And so, Father, we pray that our response would honor you, would glorify you. And as David, that we would be quick to share this same message of what you've done in us with those who need to hear. There are a lot who are tied to the ball and chain in this world. Lord, who need freedom. You created them for freedom. Give us boldness to share with them how they can be free, just like you've done for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.